This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. Do you think the world was created over millions and billions of years? Or... Maybe you think that everything that exists was created in six 24-hour periods. In today's One Verse podcast, we're going to look at Genesis 1-5, and I will share my view on those questions. And as a fair warning, if you hold strongly to one of those positions or the other, you're probably going to be somewhat offended by what I say today. (laughs) And just so you know, look, I'm not alone on this. Uh, Everything I say today has good backing from some of the best Bible commentaries on Genesis that are in existence. And uh, you can get all of these commentaries in various sources. One of the best places I like to read these commentaries is with Logos Bible Software. They are the sponsor for this show. You can get these commentaries, the best commentaries, all of them, available at Logos Bible Software. And if you purchase them from there, use my coupon code, jmyer 6 You'll get 15% off every and any purchase over there. Uh, And look, if you're buying commentaries, don't just buy the ones that you agree with. Buy the ones that make you think. That's how you're going to learn. That's how your thinking is going to stretch. Your mind is going to stretch. You are really going to dig into Scripture when you buy commentaries that have a different perspective than maybe what you are comfortable with or familiar with. So, with that in mind, let's jump into Genesis 1, verse 5. Genesis 1-5 is the final verse about the first day of creation. And uh, as with pretty much every other verse in Genesis 1, verse 5 contains some interesting theological insights about God. I've got an awful lot to say about this verse today, so let me read it and uh, let's begin. Genesis 1-5 says this, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Okay, Uh, maybe you're getting tired of hearing this, but as I have mentioned in previous episodes, Genesis 1 is similar in many ways to other creation myths, such as those of uh, the Babylonians, Sumerian, and uh, those found in Egypt. And while there are numerous differences between these various accounts, in fact, I'm going to include the Enuma Elish, a copy, a link to a copy of that in the show notes. You can go read it for yourself. You'll see there's lots and lots and lots of differences. I'm not saying they're exactly the same. Uh, but many of the similarities are so striking, it's not uncommon to hear some scholars say that Moses borrowed heavily or maybe even sort of plagiarized his creation account from these other sources. And as I've pointed out, um, look, probably Moses was, in fact, using these sources some of the events and stories found in these other creation accounts, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, The most interesting thing to consider when comparing these accounts is, is not what Moses copied, but what Moses changed. And and, and I think that is where we really find the true message of Genesis 1 and the message that Moses was trying to impress upon the people of Israel. 
He wanted to introduce Yahweh to the Israelites, and so Moses chose a story with which they were very familiar, and then he retold it so that he could set Yahweh apart from the gods and goddesses of those other creation myths. Imagine if I were to tell you a story uh, about a young woman whose mother died while she was very young, and her father remarried to another woman who had two daughters. So these were her stepsisters. Soon after uh, this marriage, the father died. And before long, the young woman's new mother and her two stepsisters began to mistreat her. They called her derogatory names. They mocked her. They, They made her act like a servant and do all the household chores. However, the prince of the land was seeking to get married, and so he held a royal ball and invited all of the eligible young ladies to come to the ball to dance, and uh, he would choose from among them a bride, a wife to get married to. And wouldn't you know it, uh, this young woman went with the help of some uh, a magical fairy godmother and a, a, a pumpkin that transformed into a coach and mice that became horses, and uh, she even had a beautiful dress, and eventually the, the prince danced with her and fell in love with her and married her. And when she became a princess, she called her stepmother and her two stepsisters before her, who had mistreated her for her entire life, and as they knelt before her, quaking in fear, about how she would repay them for their mistreatment of her, she declared once and for all, before all the watching people of the court, that her stepmother and her stepsisters were completely forgiven of everything they had ever said or done against her and would be given land and titles in the new kingdom. Now, if I told you that story, you would immediately, hopefully, (laughs) immediately recognize it as the story of Cinderella, right? Uh, But as I neared the end of its tale, you would be expecting me to tell the story about how it usually ends with Cinderella basically condemning or making her stepmother and her stepsisters uh, become servants to her, to clean the castle, and, and basically do to them as they had done to her. But I changed the story and had Cinderella forgive her stepmother and her stepsisters. Now, why did I do that? The reason is because I wanted to make a point. And, and if I had retold that story in all of its detail and made that point at the end, uh, what it would do is it would cause you to think, okay, well, which ending is better? And maybe if this was in a religious, a spiritual, you know, maybe a setting where we were talking about Jesus, we might say, well, which ending looks more like Jesus? And we could discuss that. Certainly there are consequences for actions and behavior, but at the same time, Jesus forgives. God forgives graciously, mercifully. And so we could have that sort of discussion as I changed the details about a very familiar story. Now, it's just an example, but in my opinion, that is exactly what Moses is doing in Genesis 1. It's not a scientific treatise about how the world came to be, but it's a a theological storytelling that introduces to the people of Israel Yahweh, and he introduces it with a familiar story, by telling a familiar story in a new way. Moses wanted to set Yahweh apart from the gods and goddesses of Egypt Canaan, and the other surrounding nations. So, with that in mind, we can read Genesis 1 as a, as a counter-cultural polemic against the ancient Near Eastern religious beliefs about the gods and goddesses of that religion. You cannot understand Genesis 1 without understanding what the people of that time believed about their gods and goddesses. 
they, they thought these, their gods were, were petty, uh, somewhat powerless, a lot like humans, really. They just lived longer. Uh, they got hungry. They could die. They lived a lot longer than humans, but they were mortal. Uh, they were tied to the land. If you went from one country to another, your, your gods stayed behind for the most part, and you would just start worshiping the gods of the new land. Um, there were different deities for different purposes and functions of life. So if you were a farmer, you might pray to uh, the god of, of rain or something, or the god to give you a good harvest. But if you went off to war, you would stop praying to him, and you would pray to the god of war. You know, so there were different deities you would, you would, you would pray to. And, and the point is that in the opening chapters of Genesis, Moses is setting out to show the people of Israel that Yahweh is all-powerful. He, he's not petty. Um, He's all-powerful, unlike the other gods. But he doesn't use this power the way the other gods and goddesses do to manipulate and control and play games with people's lives. Moses wants to show also that Yahweh is not tied to a particular piece of land somewhere. He's the God of all, God over all. Uh, He's the creator of all. Okay, you don't need to pray to one God for one thing and another God for something else. You can pray to God for everything. He's not petty, proud, foolish. He's eternal, loving, kind, gracious, creative, infinitely innovative, right? So all this Moses is teaching by taking some stories that the ancient Israelites were very familiar with, and then he's retelling them to make theological points about Yahweh. Genesis, look, Genesis 1 was not written to refute Charles Darwin or Stephen Hawking. It was written to contrast Yahweh with the Babylonian god Marduk, or maybe the Egyptian god Ra. So, just one further example. Uh, In the Enuma Elish, again, you can read it, there's a link to it in the show notes. Uh, It's the Babylonian creation myth. Marduk goes to war against Tiamat, this sea monster, this sea dragon a female sea dragon. And uh, when he defeats her, he sunders, he divides her body into two, and he separates the two pieces, one from the other, so that they can never join again, so they can never meet again. But in Genesis, as we're going to see today, and as we've seen so far in Genesis 1, 2, and uh, verses 3 and 4, when God uh, comes to wage war, in a sense, against the malevolent forces we saw in 1, 2, uh, rather than resorting to violence and warfare, he, he gently and creatively brings forth light and order and beauty. All right, and, and in the last time, when we saw that God separated light from darkness, the same way Marduk separated the two pieces of Tiamat, when God, when Yahweh separates light from darkness, he doesn't do it in a way that separates one from the other so that the two can never meet. No, uh, God reunites them so that they work together in harmony, in rhythm, in a pattern. I believe the point Moses is, is making is that, uh, you know, darkness, while it's usually viewed as a malevolent force, even in Genesis 1-2 and in many other places in Scripture, and it's sort of the way people think back then as now, you know, sin and evil belong to the darkness. We have this idea that all things bad happen in the dark, that sort of a thing. Uh, The point Moses is making is that in God's world, even darkness has a beautiful and benevolent role. Uh, It's brought into a sort of a, a, a symbiotic relationship with light. And so that together, light and darkness create something beautiful that neither one could accomplish on its own. We could say, 
that in Genesis 1-5, God redeems the darkness. He uses even the darkness to create, with light, to create a, a pattern, a rhythm. The, dark, the darkness isn't banished, it is brought into a relationship with light. Uh, God puts darkness in its proper place, thus redeeming the darkness and using it for good. Now look, this idea, I'm emphasizing it a lot because this idea pops up all over the place in Scripture. In fact, uh, you could almost say that this is the theme of Genesis. I say that because here we have this idea right here about God using something for good, God using something that is supposed or seen or viewed or even intended for evil, and he's using it for good. It's right here at the beginning of Genesis, and it is found at the end of Genesis also. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. They sold him into slavery, but as a result of that, Joseph became second in command over all of Egypt and rescued his people and many other people from that famine. And so it's the same idea there that we have here at the beginning of Genesis. And because we have it at the beginning of the end, we can almost say this is the point, the theme of Genesis, this redemption of what some people or some forces are viewed as good, or I'm sorry, as evil or darkness, and God turns it around, uses it, and means it for good to bring salvation uh, and deliverance and rescue to his people. And that, that theme is found so often in Scripture, everywhere in Scripture. And I believe that with spirit-filled eyes, spirit-inspired eyes, you and I can see God doing this in our own life as well. Uh, it, bad things happen, it's true, in our life, in this world. But God, He's not bound by these bad things. He can turn them around for good. He can use them for light and for love, so that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness becomes part of our story of redemption and reconciliation and hope and beauty and, and, and creative symmetry. So that's what we see in Genesis 1-5, and I really haven't even looked at the verse yet. In fact, let's just do that. Let's just jump right in. Time's passing fast. Um, look, uh, twice in this verse, in Genesis 1-5, we, we see the phrase, God called. Okay, he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Uh, this is important because here we have another action of God, another activity of God, and it's the activity of naming. Um, naming is a key activity of God. We've, we've seen several other key activities of God so far. Um, here, naming is one. Uh, you can also see it in verse 8 and 10 and so on. And, and you may recall, we'll see it when we get there, that God also gives this activity. In Genesis 1-4, we saw this activity of seeing, and he gave it to Adam and to Eve. Uh, this naming activity he also gives to Adam and, and Eve, especially Adam in Genesis 2, 19-20. God tells Adam to name the animals. Uh, now, this is important, again, from what Moses was trying to say. In the Enuma Elish and other... Uh, pagan religious writings, often naming was viewed as sort of a, a way of, of gaining power over somebody. It was sort of thought that if you could learn someone's true name, then you could have power over them. Uh, it was sort of a, a form of sorcery or magic or something, but obviously God's not doing that here. It is, it is God asserting his power, but, but he's not naming it to to gain power over it necessarily, but he's naming it to bring it into a pattern, a relationship with what he's doing. 
Uh, and so this naming, though, he gives to Adam and Eve, and it's just part of the process of redemption is what it is, a part of bringing God's creation into alignment with his purposes. Uh, and, and so, so far in Genesis 1, uh, we've seen several activities of God, and only five verses so far, we've, we've seen God creating, redeeming, seeing, and naming. And these activities become central to God's actions throughout the rest of Scripture. There's a few other activities of God. I've written a whole post. You know, I don't know how familiar you are with theology, but theology is typically divided up into certain, uh, well, difficult to understand, maybe if you're new to theology, you know, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, pneumatology, right, Christology, all these sorts of categories of theology. I sometimes think that, that theology would be better if we used these activities of God as the uh, focus or as the center of how we organize our theology. I've written a blog post about this, about new category, uh, theology categories, new categories of theology, something like that. I'll find the link and put it in the show notes. You can go read a little bit more about that. Eventually, sometime, uh, hopefully in my life, I'd like to write an entire theology based around these new categories of theology, these activities, rather than those weird uh, words that we get from Latin and, and Greek and other sources. Uh, but uh, anyway, that, that's, that's a project for another day. Uh, let's, let's move on, though, to Genesis 1-5, and this is sort of what I opened up today's show with. It, it says, Genesis 1-5 concludes with a key phrase. It says, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, this is significant in a couple of ways. First, uh, this first day is sort of parallel to the last day, which is obviously the day of rest, the the seventh day. And uh, that's significant um, because uh, it's showing the redemption of time. And uh, we read about that in the New Testament, about redeeming the time because the days are evil. And um, so uh, we, we just just keep that in mind. We'll talk more about that, I think, when we get to the seventh day. But, but the main thing here I want to talk about is this idea of days. Uh, I, I want to close out our, our discussion of Genesis 1-5 by noting the repetition of the counting of days in Genesis 1. I'm sure you're familiar with this. If you've been around discussions about Genesis 1 for much time at all, um, there's this, this repeated idea, evening and morning were the, the first day, and then at the end of the second day we read, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, and then at the end of the third day there was evening and morning the third day, etc. Right? And, and so there's this huge debate about what this means, especially since uh, the introduction of the theory of evolution. Uh, so some people, in trying to get this to agree with the theory of evolution, have said, well, <clears throat> it's, it's called the day-age theory. They're saying, well, each day, <clears throat> excuse me, they're saying that each day could mean uh, long ages or, or, you know, millennia or maybe even millions or billions of years, right? That's, that's one view. The other view is saying, no, 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 look at this word day. It's, it's talking about morning and evening, and you compare the word day with other uses of the word day, especially when it's associated with numbers and the rest of Scripture, and it's got to be literal 24-hour periods. And so the six days of creation were six uh, literal 24-hour periods. Uh, and, and there's a huge debate about this. Now look, uh, either idea, you ready? Either idea creates huge problems for how to understand the rest of the text. Uh, I mean, how could there be days or nights before there's stars, sun, moon, and stars? Uh, We talked about that previously. Uh, Or, to go the other way, 
uh, how could uh, an age, if we go with the day-age theory, if each day lasts for millions or billions of years, how is it that plants survive uh, without the sun? Right? The plants, are, plants are, are created on day three, but the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until day four. Well, if there's millions and billions of years in there, I don't know, it's just all sorts of scientific, uh, logical problems. Now look, you want to know where these th- problems come from? It's not because we're misreading, well, it is because we're misreading the text. We're trying to read the text as a scientific treatise on the creation of the universe, and, and that's not what it is. I pounded this in, I've said this, I've repeated it over and over. Genesis 1 is a theological polemic. It's a story against the prevailing religious activities in the days of Moses and the Hebrews and the Israelites. And when we read Genesis 1 as the literary and theological masterpiece that it is, then what we see is that these references to morning and evening, they're not about the passage of time, right? Instead, they are a literary device to provide order and symmetry to this creation song, which we find in Genesis 1. Uh, look, look at it this way. Uh, there, there's great order here. Uh, you could put the first three days of Genesis on a left-hand side, sort of in a column, and then the second three days, days four, five, and six, on a right-hand column, and line them up so that day one is parallel to day four, and day two is parallel to day five, and then day three is parallel to, to day six. And uh, they're very similar. And it, they go back to what we read in Genesis 1-2 about the, the world being without form and void, or without form and empty. And so days 1, 2, and 3 are reversing the without form, because this is the days that God forms things. And then the, the, the second three days, days 4, 5, and 6, is when he takes what he forms and he fills them. So, so Genesis 1-2 says things were without form and void, and days 1, 2, 3 are forming, and days uh, 4, 5, 6 are filling, days of filling. And he fills on day 4 what he formed on day 1. I hope to, hope that all makes sense. And so uh, this morning and evening phrase, which is repeated at the end of each day, it's not uh, uh, telling us that another day, you know, the sunset and another day has passed. It's a way of dividing up the narrative, a way of dividing up the story. It's a literary device to provide the creation story with order and structure, poetry, beauty, theology, truth. That's how to read these days. It's not about the passage of time, whether you're talking millions and billions of years or six 24-hour periods of time at all. It's poetry. Let's look at at it another way. Uh, um, I started today's show uh, talking about the story of Cinderella. Now, you all know how the story of Cinderella starts. In fact, most fairy tales start this way. Uh, they, they start, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, or something like that, right? Now, if I had started my story that way, would you have immediately thought, oh, okay, he's going to tell us a story from history? No, you wouldn't have thought that. Why not? Because you are familiar with the opening lines of most fairy tales. Usually, when you set out to begin telling a fairy tale... You, you say, once upon a time, you know, right? A long, long time ago. Now, what if, though, 10,000 years from now, some archaeologist or historian or something like that came across these stories, this fairy tale, or the one that I told about Cinderella or something, 
And uh, they didn't know how fairy tales usually began. And they would look at this opening line and they would, not knowing how fairy tales began, they would take it at face value and thought I was telling uh, about an actual historical event. Uh, If they thought this and then they read the rest of the story, one of two things would occur. They would conclude one of two things. Either they would say, well, this guy thought he was telling about a historical event an event in history, and so we, in order to understand what he's saying, need to go back in history and dig through the the archives of history and find out when this happened and what kingdom it occurred in and where this woman was named Cinderella. You know, and, and boy, uh, what's all this about the fairy godmother and how are we to understand? Did they really have magic? You know, they would start on this doomed attempt to try to find the historical record that I was referring to when there was not a historical record at all. Now, if they thought it was historical record and they realized it was fanciful and make-believe and fake, then maybe they would go the other way and say, well, he clearly was an idiot because he thought that fairy godmothers and magical pumpkins and glass slippers were true, and obviously everybody knows they're not. And so look at how stupid these people were back then thinking this sort of thing, right? All because they misunderstood the opening line. Once upon a time really means not ever. This didn't ever happen. Here, I'm going to tell you a fairy tale. Look, that is exactly what is going on, in my opinion, and many commentaries and other scholars as well. It's not just me. When you read Genesis 1, When we read the phrase, and it was morning and evening, at the end of uh, each of the six days, uh, we don't realize, if if we do not realize that this is a poetic device to provide symmetry and order and beauty to the account, then either, like many creationists, we're going to try to defend how God created the world in six days, or, like the evolutionists, you're going to think, Look at this author here in Genesis. Clearly, you know, the world didn't come to be in six days. How could he be so foolish and stupid for thinking that? Because clearly it didn't happen, and we all know better now. But if you just step back and realize this is a poetic device, then you can enjoy, you can appreciate Genesis 1 in its beauty and its symmetry and its poetic structure. And the whole debate about whether it's six 24-hour periods or billions and millions of years, it just disappears, and both evolutionists and creationists can enjoy Genesis 1 and what it is saying about God, rather than getting into all these silly arguments about how long ago it occurred and how long it took. Okay? Uh, and by, by the way, when, when uh, just as you and I understand once upon a time, long, long time ago, Right? This, this phrase, and it was morning, and it was evening, the Israelites, Moses and the Israelites, would have understood it as a literary poetic device, because they had stories all over the place. Many Mesopotamian and Ugaritic pieces of literature, they use that exact pattern, and it was morning, and it was evening. They use that exact pattern to tell their religious stories about their gods and goddesses. Okay? So uh, they would have understood it, and it was morning, that phrase, and it was morning, and it was evening, the same way you and I understand the phrase, once upon a time, long, long time ago. Okay, it's the same exact thing. Uh, So when we stop trying to read Genesis 1 as this scientific treatise, and instead start reading it as this theological and literary masterpiece, it's then that we are reading Genesis 1 correctly. Okay, no matter what you actually believe about how the universe came to be. Uh, 
And look, here, here's the thing. Bring it back around. Um, this sort of approach is going to allow you to bring light into the darkness. Uh, look, I personally believe that atheistic evolution is not correct. Right? I am a creationist. I really am. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Well, we won't go there. Uh, I, I am. I, I believe God created everything. Right? Uh, and I hope that you agree with me. Uh, but even if you don't, uh, look, atheistic evolution, I think, is a form of darkness today. To think that everything just came into being by random chance millions and billions of years ago, and we're just a product of chance, I just think it's a, hope, a very distressing, depressing, lack of hope perspective. There's lots of darkness there. Okay, but how are we going to counter that darkness? It's not going to help us to try and convince atheistic evolutionist people that God created the world in six 24-hour periods. To argue with them about that is just not going to help. It's not going to accomplish anything. Um, there's nothing productive about it. A better tact, a better approach, it seems to me, is just not even argue the point. Uh, instead, approach atheistic evolution the same way that Moses approached the religious beliefs of his time about Marduk and Ra, and basically come to atheistic evolutionists and say, yeah, I see your point, but if there's a God, and they, a lot of them, obviously, they're, they're not even going to believe there's a God, or they're going to say, even if there is, we can't. No, there's probably not a God. That's, 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 that's sort of the perspective. There's probably not a God. So we can say, well, if there is, though, what do you think he might be like? And that begins the conversation. Then we're not having this pointless discussion about how long ago the world began and, and six 24-hour periods and millions and billions of years. We don't, it's, it's not even the point. We can just say, if there's a God, what is Genesis 1 teaching us that he is like? What is it teaching us about this God who may or may not exist? And we can have a conversation with them. And you see what happens then is then you're able to develop a relationship. You're able to enter into communion with people who you think might be living in darkness. And that brings order and rhythm and community and beauty and relationship. And that's what God wants after all, right? This is how God worked in the very beginning and this is how God continues to work today. Okay? Uh, and this is what we're going to see in the rest of creation about Genesis 1, uh, as well as in the rest of Scripture. If you have eyes to see, this is what you can observe in your own life as well. As we close today out, listen, I want to invite you. Uh, if you have experiences in dealing with darkness this way, maybe it's darkness in your life, maybe it's darkness somehow in society and culture, would you come leave a comment in the comment section on this, on this show? You can go to redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1-5. Leave a comment, be an encouragement to others to show how God can bring light into the darkness. It's not light versus darkness. It's bringing light into the darkness so the two can work together so that one can redeem the other and they can work together in beautiful symmetry and harmony. Also, you know what? I would appreciate your feedback on what I had to say about the six days of creation being a literary device. Maybe you strongly disagree. Maybe you want to prove that they really were 24-hour periods or maybe billions or millions of years. Let's have a conversation about that also, if you'd really like to. You can leave comments about that as well. Um, and why you think we should read it scientifically rather than from a poetic perspective. Hey, and as long as you're leaving comments, I'd appreciate a review on iTunes. 
That's going to help other people enter into this conversation as well. Go over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. It's going to help people find the blog. I'd really appreciate it. I read all those. Very soon I'll be reading some of your comments about people who left uh, reviews there. And hey, as long as we're inviting people into the conversation, would you do me a favor? Share this episode on Facebook or Twitter. Invite other people to subscribe as well. The more people we have subscribed, the broader the conversation will be, and we can all journey after God. Learn what He is like, what He is not like together. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you the next time when we look at the beginning of Day 2 in Genesis 1-6.